Good morning. Uh, they won't be uh, screening the uh, the verses up above, and also this will be the area that will be uh, preached on today. So if you uh, want to turn the Pew Bibles to page 1059, we'll be reading uh, John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough to f for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are, we, what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving that when, uh, perceiving that, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, thank you for your word, Lord. These are familiar words and passages, and I just pray that we would um, just hear it afresh and new what it is that our pastor is uh, on his heart to share with us. We thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dave. Can you hear me? Think so? Maybe? Maybe not? 
Um, on the back table, before we get into the text, there are some devotionals that we got from Crossway this year. Uh, they're taken out of a children's Bible, but they are great stories. Uh, our kids know some of them, and they talk about the snake crusher. Uh, that is Jesus, if you needed me to tell you that. But uh, this is a great Easter stories. Uh, even if you're not a child, it would be great for you to even read through uh, as you're um, spending some time on your own, reflecting on and preparing your own heart for Easter. So Crossway gave them to us for free. They're on the back. If you have friends, family, people at school, people you work with that you want to give them to, we have more than what's on the table, so feel free to grab them. So over the last couple years, maybe even longer, we've heard a lot of things from others about what we need. You need to watch this show, or you need to follow this politician. No, 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 you need to follow that politician. You need to vote for that party. You need to wear this mask. You need to have that vaccine. Oh, no, you need not to have that vaccine. Oh, you need to have another vaccine. You need to watch this video on YouTube. You need this war to stop. We need to start a war with somebody else. Well, in 1967, the Beatles released their song, All You Need Is Love. With an emphasis of the challenges that were happening in the 60s, that it was a message that everybody could understand across the world. And the song focused on the theme that we all can relate to. And it was a catchy song with easy lyrics, with a memorable tune, and the world does need love. And the Beatles didn't know, though, where their ultimate need was. The world needs the love of God. And without God, to help us, we won't receive it. And so this morning, we will see that Jesus knows our needs, and he will meet them, and he does meet them, including our biggest need of Jesus himself. So will you pray with me and we'll look again at the text that Dave just read. Father, thank you that you were so gracious to give us your word that we can see that you do meet our needs by giving us your son. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to see that, to believe that, and to live our lives according to that truth. So, Father, we ask for your help this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let look again with me at uh, verses 1 through 4. So, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is on the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so some time has now passed since the events that we just looked at in chapters 3 through 5. Discussions have taken place between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Samaritan woman, a centurion, and a paralytic that was healed by the pool of Bethsaida, but also some time where he was speaking to a group of Jews. 
And verse 2 shows us that a crowd has started to follow him. And this crowd saw the signs that Jesus has done. They have heard the teaching that he has given. Not just the signs of him turning water into wine or healing on the official son or helping the cripple to walk again, but every sign that he had done along the way. Even those that are not recorded in the Gospel of John. Just as a reminder, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Maybe some of you have memorized it since I've said it every week. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This crowd was following Jesus, but they did not believe the things that Jesus was saying and doing. John, the gospel writer, he calls this group of people following him a crowd. And as you look at the Gospels, not just the Gospel of John, you'll find three different groups of people that follow Jesus. The disciples are the ones that our minds will naturally go to. They're the ones that want to follow him, to learn from him, to obey him. You also have the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as they're called in other Gospels. They're the ones who want Jesus to follow their teaching and not to follow his teaching. They want Jesus to be their student not and follow their teaching on God's word, not necessarily the teaching of God's word. And then you have this third group, the crowds. And these are the folks that are intrigued about what Jesus is doing, about what he is saying, about what Jesus can do for them. They wanted to see more of what he could do. Maybe put on another magic show and heal this person or that person. But that is not the approach that we are to have as we come as a church to Jesus. And so as we get into the text this morning, I want you to consider which of these three groups of people may you be this morning? A disciple? A Pharisee? A religious leader? Or part of the crowd? And so this crowd that John refers to, he doesn't want, they don't want Jesus' teaching, they want Jesus' action. The text says they saw the signs that he had done and they, naturally they want more of them. For the crowds, like the Pharisees, their external needs are their primary concern. What can Jesus do for them? And so Jesus takes a break from walking and he takes a break from working and he sits down away from the crowds and he is specifically going to take some time to talk to his disciples, to teach them. The crowds are close to them, but he was being intentional with his disciples. And to complete the setting, John reminds us in verse 4 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is a big, big deal in the Gospel of John. We are now starting a new phase in Jesus' ministry, year number two in the Gospel of John, Jesus' ministry here on earth. And so the stage is set. And so given the background that it's the Jewish Passover, the reminder that Jesus is the sacrifice for the people of God on the cross that will happen a year from now in the text, the third mention of the Passover. And so in your own heart, in your own mind, I'd like you to ask God, would you teach 
me right now and this text as we go through it this morning. The crowd wanted to be entertained. Maybe they wanted to feel good about themselves. Maybe they wanted to avoid some ridicule by some of those religious leaders if they follow God's word. And so Jesus will leverage this situation and circumstances to teach us some great truth this morning. And like so many people who have already come in this gospel, the crowds are blind to the real needs that they have. But in verse 5, we get to see that Jesus knows our needs. And he meets them, including our biggest need of Jesus himself. Would you look at it with me? Lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where do we buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to him to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, There's a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are we to do for so many? So Jesus, as he's sitting down with the crowd, he immediately knows that the crowd, I mean, sorry, he's sitting down with the disciples, that this crowd is coming. And he knows what their basic needs are, right? It's for bread. It's for food. It's for some sustenance. As I've been told, it's not dinner. It's supper. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is teaching them how to live their life. Teaching his disciples, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he sees the crowd. He saw that they have a need for food. And we've seen this language before in the Gospel of John, if you're thinking about what we've looked at before. And so Jesus is being purposeful with his language. And as a recap, after Jesus had met with the Samaritan woman, she went back to her town and told them of everything that Jesus had done. And this crowd from the Samaritan village comes back to Jesus. And the disciples also ask him about what they are going to eat. I'll remind you, it should be up on the screen. John chapter 4, verses 32. Jesus said to him, or said, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. And so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so for the next two weeks, this theme will come up about bread and food and what we truly need. And as Jesus finishes in the next verse in chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And so you see the parallels between chapter 4 and chapter 6. The crowds are there. Those who do not yet believe are there. The fields are ripe for harvest as the whole Samaritan village came and a large group of unbelievers is there around them. And Jesus knows their need. And it is a need for food. But Jesus knows what he will do in verse 6. But he takes another opportunity, a continued opportunity to teach his disciples. 
And so again, this is for you and for me, those who want to follow him. This is just one meal that they need to eat. And these people might have eaten breakfast. They might have already had something for lunch. They weren't going to die, is my guess. But I bet somebody had already figured out, for some of them, what they would do for supper. And they're still sitting there waiting for Jesus. But Jesus knows what they need. And so he takes an opportunity to teach. And so Jesus clearly knows all, like he saw Nathanael when we saw in chapter 1, as he was under the fig tree before he called him. And as he was introduced to Jesus, Nathanael, the person who introduced him in chapter 1 was Philip. And look who Jesus talks to today. Philip. And so Philip, he knows the situation. He's a math whiz. He's an accountant in the making. And he immediately says that it's going to take 200 denarii to feed these many, this many people. And a denarii is a day's wage. This equates to eight months' wages. And when you look at the average salary of the state of Vermont, it's about $60,000. And so what we're looking at here is a need of $40,000 to feed this large group of people. It's clearly a miracle that is needed. And this idea of needing food is, has significant parallels in the Old Testament. I'll bring a couple of them out for you, where the Jewish people, they needed a large quantity of food. In the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament, we see something akin to what's taking place here. As the book of Genesis finishes, the nation of Israel is stuck in Egypt. And you're familiar with the book of Exodus. Moses is called and he helps peop the people of Israel escape from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. And in the book of ne Leviticus, we are given the law. And in Numbers, the people of Israel are found in the desert hungry. They recalled the meat that they had eaten in Egypt, the cantaloupes and cucumbers and the delicious food that their slave masters gave them. And they remembered the manna from heaven that God had given them when they had needed their food. And so Moses, he starts to question God. How will I feed all of these people? Moses, he has an insurmountable need and a lot of people that are hungry with very few resources to feed them. And in Numbers chapter 11, verse 13, Moses says this. Look at the parallels. Where am I to get meat to give all these people? Moses, he was confused. He didn't know how the need was going to be met. But Jesus wasn't. And in verse 8 and 9, imagine this is Andrew hearing this story. Maybe he's sitting next to Philip around this circle. Well, there's this boy here. He's got five barley loaves. He's got two fish. I, I know it's not enough, but we have it. Andrew has a very small inkling of faith, and he just offers the information to Jesus, which Jesus already knew about. And barley loaves, they're poor man's food. The fish was probably pickled or dried. And this is a similar miracle that we see with the prophet Elisha, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, where he was able to perform the same miracle, a similar miracle by the hand of God. 
I'll read 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42. It says, A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? And so he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. And so for three chapters in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about physical, normal needs that everyday people have, from birth to marriage to death and sickness, to show that God's people truly need more than our physical needs met. Here, the need is for hunger, where God's people are starving, but not just for food, but for something much more significant and much more necessary. In our next section, it shows us what Jesus does because Jesus knows our need and he meets our need, including our biggest need of Jesus himself. So look at, me at, verse, look at verse 10 with me, please. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed a prophet. Is, sorry, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And so Jesus, he has the disciples have this crowd sit down in the grass, which would be nice this time of year. I'm sick of mud. And as I was sitting here and we were singing a couple songs, I saw a couple snowflakes fall. So it made me have a tear or two. But John says that there were about 5,000 men. And that doesn't include the women and children who were there. And most scholars believe that there was upwards of 20,000 people that were following Jesus. It's a big rally of people seeking a miracle worker. It makes sense now, the question related to how much money was needed, right? $40,000 for that, it's just $2 a person. That's not a, a significant amount of money to spend on somebody who's going to need food. But Jesus, he takes the bread, he gives thanks for it, and then he distributes, distributes it to those who were seated. And a quick aside, that Jesus says he gave thanks for the bread is a common thing that the Jewish people would do. You've probably heard of saying a blessing over a meal, right? And it's a form of a Jewish thanksgiving, something like, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It was a traditional thing the Jewish people around that time would say. And we often say a blessing, right? But we don't bless God. We thank God for the blessing that He gives to us. As one pastor says, 
is we don't ask God to make a Cheeto into a carrot. When you eat a meal, it's easy to say, God, thank you. So we can follow Jesus' example with that. And so these folks, they sit down and the food was distributed and they ate as much as they wanted. In verse 12, it says that they ate their fill. And so Jesus, he gives them as much as they wanted. And he's, if you want more, and here's some more. And here's some more grace for you. And they aren't full yet, and he says that you can have some more. And John stresses how lavish the abundance of food was given. Not based on just the need, but how much they wanted. And so you see that even eight months' wages would not have been enough to satisfy the need and the want that these folks had. And I'm reminded of John chapter 1, verse 16. For from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Where Jesus never runs out of grace to bestow upon us. And when we need or want more, he's got plenty to give us. And so the disciples, they go about and they clean up the leftovers. And in the wilderness, the people of Israel were not permitted to keep the extra food, the manna that was given to them from heaven. But these 12 disciples gathered 12 baskets of extra bread. And as in the desert, God provided enough bread for all of the tribes of Israel. And scholars believe that that is about a million people were there. And as Tyler mentioned a few weeks ago, there was not much significance to those five colonnades that were by the pool of Bethsaida when Jesus healed the cripple. But here in chapter 6, when we see that there were 12 baskets left over because of the 12 disciples, there is significance here. But it's context that helps us to understand it. Just like when Tyler said it wasn't the context that those five colonnades in Bethsaida were important. Where we must be students of God's word, his entire counsel, to see what he's trying to emphasize for us. And so like the abundance of the best wine we saw in chapter 2 at the wedding, would he change the water to wine? God provides an abundance of bread and fish to meet all of our needs. In the kingdom of God, it has abundant blessings. And God is infinitely capable of providing that blessing, and he will never, ever run out of that blessing. And Jesus wants to continue to hammer into the heads of those who are reading and those who are around that he is able to meet those needs. As Jeremiah 31, 14 reminds God's people of this promise from the Old Testament. My people shall be satisfied with the goodness, with my goodness, declares the Lord. And in verse 14 the crowds see it too. They respond. They say, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. And this idea of a prophet finds its roots with Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, Moses was about ready to send God's people back into the land and he's overlooking the land of Israel and he has this charge for the people. I will rise up for them, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This 
circumstance in our text this morning is the crowd is seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise that a prophet would come. But what John wants us to see is that Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus is a fulfillment of all that Moses did, but all that, also all that Moses taught. And the same God of the universe who did so many miraculous signs in and through Moses himself. Again, it's Passover. And so a Moses-like prophet in their minds is here. At Passover, bread was needed to be made quickly. Today, it's needed quickly. And so naturally, what do people do? Post it on Facebook. Our king is here. Let's put him on a throne. They see their leader needs to be exalted back to the spotlight to guide them. They want to make Jesus king. And so in verse 15, it shows us the hope of the second exodus is here. And they want to make Jesus king. Look at it again with me. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so we've seen this miracle performed by Moses, by Elisha. It's also performed by the prophet Elijah as well as healing miracles by all three of those people. And as a result, they want to make Jesus king. In their minds, it would be better for them to take Jesus, to put him on a throne, to overthrow their Roman occupiers, but Jesus wouldn't have any of it. Jesus wasn't going out into the woods to enjoy some peace and solitude. He was getting away from what they wanted of him, which would be different than what he had orchestrated with God before the foundations of the world. Jesus couldn't be king without him first going to the cross for us. In John chapter 18, we'll see probably in a few months, Jesus says this in verse 36. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And as one commentator says, Jesus himself knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be by beating the enemy in siege warfare, but by dying and rising from the dead. And so friends, in three weeks we will celebrate Easter. Our greatest need is not for bread. Our greatest need is not healing from sickness. Our greatest need is not a happy marriage. It's not perfect children. Our greatest need is Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not by putting him on a throne. And this is the gospel, the good news, the, the greatest news, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's our greatest need. And Jesus provides for our greatest need by giving of himself. So next week, we'll look at what this passage truly means, where Jesus says that he is the bread of life. But in verse 16, at first glance, we see the story of the disciples going out on the lake. And why is it here, breaking up these two sections? And so let's look one more time at this passage in verse 16. But remember, though, that Jesus knows our needs and he meets them 
including our biggest need of Jesus himself. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Jesus went away, as we saw in the previous section, to a mountain to escape this crowd wanting to put him on a throne. And the disciples, they leave him. I find it kind of funny. They, Jesus went off into the mountain. Well, it's nighttime, so let's go out into the lake and let's go across the water. Not sure where he went, but let's go. And the symbolism here, though, is significant in the Gospel of John. It says it was now dark. And Jesus had not come yet. In verse 17. As in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, it's this similar theme that comes up in the Gospel of John. But where darkness and an absence of Jesus, they're powerfully linked in this Gospel to show us our desperate need for Jesus. And so the disciples find themselves out on a lake where the weather started to get rough and the tiny ship was tossed, but not for the courage of a fearless crew. The minnow would be lost. Wrong story. In the storm, they see Jesus walking on the sea, but they were afraid. And he was coming to them. He was coming near them, not to amaze them with another miracle of food, but to show them a visible demonstration of his sovereignty over the world that he has created. There could be no reasonable doubt that all of the gospel writers, including John, portrays this event as a miracle, just like the gospel writers portray 20,000 people getting fed with five loaves and two fish where Jesus has created it all and he can do what he wants with it, even walking on the water. And so Jesus comes near to them and they were frightened, but they quickly hear the words from Jesus' own mouth in verse 20, words of comfort. It is I, do not be afraid. The I am is here. The same words God used for himself in Exodus chapter 3 when God was speaking to Moses at the burning bush where Moses had his doubts and he asked God, who shall I say has sent me? And God says this as he, before he takes his people out of Egypt at Passover. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Where God uses his covenant name. He's the promise keeper, the self-sustained one, the one who covenants with his people. And when God covenants with his people, he always keeps his promises. If you're familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, 
Over and over again, it says that the, this is God's name to remind us of His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that should cause us to be comforted like these men, to fear not. The Bible does tell us to fear God. But it's not like the fear and torment of the world in which we live in that comes to mind. Do not fear is actually the most repeated command in all of the Bible. It's not love your neighbor. It's not do not sin. Do not fear. The Puritan, Jonathan Flavel, says this, and I think it's helpful to help us understand what's going on here. He says, fear is generated by unbelief, and unbelief strengthened by fear. You see the repeating cycle. And therefore, all the skill in the world can never cure us of the disease of fear, till God first cure us of our unbelief. Christ, therefore, took the right method to rid his disciples of their fear by rebuking their unbelief. And so when we look at this in the context of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is walking on the water, it is not misplaced. And this takes place so the disciples can be cured of their unbelief. And so can we. And so what do you struggle to believe and what is that tied to of what you fear? Jesus knows our needs. Jesus meets our needs. And Jesus meets our biggest needs, which is himself. And we receive eternal life by believing in him. And when the disciples believed this, the text says in verse 21, they were glad. And they brought him into the boat, and then the boat was at land. And it's a bit ironic. In the midst of their fear, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of their doubts, they were so close to the shore and they didn't even know it. And in the midst of their fear, right next to the salvation from the storm, Jesus confronts their unbelief, calmed the storm, and provided for their need, which was to get to land. And the disciples, they take Jesus into the boat where they receive him. Last week, Jesus said this in John 5, verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And so the point here is that these disciples, they receive Jesus. They welcome Jesus in. They believe in him. And so my encouragement to you, church, is to welcome him and to believe in him. And even if you've followed Jesus for decades, the doubts and fears and sin, it causes us to push Jesus away. But welcome him, receive him, believe in him, and receive that the life receive from him the eternal life that he gives you by believing in him. And for the original readers of John's gospel, they would have considered the sea very dangerous, signifying chaos and disorder. But it's God who controls it and who stills the storm. And because Jesus knows our need, Jesus meets our need. And Jesus meets our biggest need, which is himself. And we receive eternal life by believing in him.
And so as you reflect on our passage this morning, I have a few takeaways for you. First, I think it's okay to go and ask God to meet your needs. He's a good, loving father who delights to give good gifts to his children. I'm hungry. I need a job. I need a new job. I want to get rid of the sin in my life. You can go to him and you can ask him for those things. Second, be patient. If God doesn't give it to you right away. If God doesn't give you what you want or what you need, you can still be patient because we have a greater, he may have a greater purpose in waiting or saying no to you right now. Maybe that job isn't best for you. Maybe he wants your faith to grow in patience. Third, when we, God does meet your need, give him the glory. You're, you can receive gladness like these disciples did where you receive him, you believe him, you can thank God for everything. The breath you have, the food that you eat, the job that you have, even when he doesn't answer according to your plans, you can still thank him. Where he's working, he hears, and he loves you. And finally, I think we've seen this theme over and over again as people are interacting with Jesus in this gospel. Don't miss Jesus himself. The previous sections were full of people, like the disciples, like the Jews, like the Samaritan woman, like the cripple, like the man whose son was ill. They didn't see Jesus. And so receive Jesus like the disciples. Believe in his name and receive from him the gift of eternal life. And ask God, you can even ask him, show me what you're doing. Where the world around us is raging like the storm, we can work harder. We can try to do things better. We can take matters into our own hands, but friends, that will not last. There's no lasting joy in taking matters into your own hands. And we can, like the disciples, receive Jesus as the gift that he is into the boat, and they were glad. And so true joy isn't just temporary deliverance from whatever ails us this day or this moment. True joy comes by believing in Jesus. He is your greatest need. And so, yes, all you do need is love, like the Beatles say. But we need the love of God to make our salvation possible so we can receive Him and we can receive the salvation that He promises to give us by believing in Him, where we can love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we can love our neighbor as ourself. And God initiates this for us. This is not about letting go and letting God, like our culture tells us often. Before Andrew came and brought the boy with the bread, who started the discussion? Jesus did. The disciples didn't use a flare to notify Jesus on the side of the shore that they were in trouble. He went and met them. And so Jesus knows what we need. And he meets our needs. But most importantly, he meets our greatest need, which is himself. And so we can rest in that. And so let's take a moment to pray, and then we will close out our time worshiping him in song. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son.
to die in our place on the cross for our sins. While we were your enemies. Where we weren't just ignorant of the things you call us to. God, we were hostile. We didn't want anything to do with it. We loved our sin and we wanted to follow our own path and the lies of the enemy. And so God, we thank you that while we were enemies, where we didn't want anything of you, God, that you sent your son to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. And that God, you don't know, you no longer look on us who believe in you as enemies, but as beloved sons and daughters. And so God, thank you for sending your son to meet that greatest need, which is you, which is what we need most, even when we don't want it. We thank you that you give us your spirit to help us to remember those truths and to follow and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so God, we want to lift up our voice now and sing to you for you are great and mighty and do wonderful things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us again? Thank you.